Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You can now take Caribbean Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show and I'm your host West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich and we're coming to you live from smoky downtown Elmira, Oregon where the sun has been hidden by the haze all day long and and never got really daylight here today. We basically have one of these days where it looked like it was sunset all day long as far as the color of the white and the quality of the light. Um, I'll be so happy when the rains come or we get some good west wind and clear the smoke out of here. At least not last week, you know, our air quality here in in where I live is a little over 100 right now. Last week it was over 500 as far as AQI goes, and we had ash falling from the sky. So I'm pretty happy about that much improvement. So, um but we're not here to talk about the weather so much today as we are. We have a guest today on the Bose Nose Show, and we're going to be talking to Scott Jorgensen, who's written several books, but his most recent book is called Our Friend Dennis. And um, it's an interesting read. It's a different style of, of book, and I'll, I'll let Scott talk about that a little bit here as we bring Scott onto the show. Welcome, Scott. How are you doing today? Well, I can't complain. It's actually a beautiful, picture-perfect day here in Rainier. Yeah, and and uh, just so people know, you're 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 not just an author. You actually have a day job. What what do you actually do in Rainier? Uh, I started earlier this month as city administrator. After two and a half years, the same role but different title. City recorder this in Aurora. Getting a little bit of breakup on you, Scott. So I don't know if you turned your head or something, but um, we'll have to. Hopefully, that won't clear up. So, um, you know, what made you decide to to write a book about Dennis? Well, I think this is a man who essentially gave up the last twenty years of his life to serving the people of Oregon, and did it with honor and integrity. And I thought that he definitely earned his place in Oregon history, and that that story might as well be told by people who loved him. And so that was the approach I took uh, when writing it. You know, and it's really uh, true. I, I did get to meet Dennis, you know, at Dorchester, I think, before his first run for state rep, um, and met him several times after that and, and lobbied him on, for budget dollars you know, as a commissioner, as we were trying to get uh, bonding authority for a courthouse, uh, which he was not really in favor of, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you, know, you know, so it's kind of interesting. So you and I have crossed paths a lot, too, because um, I think we both kind of got involved, um, you as a reporter and, and me as an activist in Oregon politics, somewhere about the same time uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, then as I be, you know, got into elected office and was lobbying the legislature, continued to run into you. And, and um, so we, we crossed paths a lot. And, uh, but you spent a whole lot more time with Dennis than I ever did. Um, 
tell me a little bit about um, you know the book and and what made you choose the style of of, of um, telling that story that you did because it's a really interesting um, I, I think you call it a narrative uh, uh, style or, or yeah that is kind of people's own words um, to describe um, Dennis Richardson and his career. Um, what made you choose that specific style? Well, the idea for doing a book first came up not too long after he passed away, but it was still really raw. And what he meant to me wasn't quite clear um, until quite a bit after he was gone. And so, I mean, I, I'm a history dork, and I've read all kinds of books about Oregon history and biographies. And so I realized I didn't want to take an academic approach to it. Um, I, I didn't want it to be dry. I really wanted to get to the humanity of who he was. So I realized that if I wrote it just from my perspective, that it would have been pretty short. I mean, I knew him pretty well, but it, it you know, my friend Dennis wouldn't have been much. So I realized that there were a lot of people in my immediate circle who also knew him well and worked with him at different points in his public life. So I decided to focus on his public life and, you know, starting from his stint on the Central Point City Council um, to his statewide offices, his stint in the legislature and kind of everywhere in between and right until the end. And between all these folks that I knew and from some of the newsletters that I had access to, you know, his famous newsletters, I, I was able to piece together the story um, using several different voices and, you know, different perspectives of the same series of events at times. Yeah, I, I loved his newsletters when, you know, from his legislative office there, they were, I, I, you know, it's one of the things that you could subscribe to certain legislators, you know, newsletters or, or, or email list and all that. His was one that I definitively made sure I was on the list because it was really informative and gave some great background on issues. So, you know, as a county commissioner in trying to understand what was going on in Salem, his newsletters were incredible. So I can imagine they, they actually were a great source of following his history too. And what an incredible Yeah, and, and I, I worked and I worked on them. Right. I mean, I was, I was his legislative aide during the 2005 session, so um, helped put those together. And then by the time I was with the House Republican office in 2013, 14, uh, it was a lot more involved process. So once he was running for governor, there was a, you know, a lot more people involved in it and a lot more drafts and iterations. But, you know, he always made sure to do his research and to document absolutely everything. Um, he, and he was adamant about that, that the things that came out in his newsletter were definitely his opinion, um, but they were factual. He had a basis in reality, and if you wanted to look at the documentation, he'd give you the links. Here, don't take my word for it. Here's the actual budget document. Yeah, I, I knew never to go into Dennis's office and try and, and blow smoke at him. Because <laughs> he probably knew about more about whatever I was coming to talk to him about than I could ever know. Um, it seemed like, so I, I he was definitely, um, did his research and, and your book, um, you know, one of the things you, you figure out really quick is no one got in the office before Dennis. And no one really left, you know, before Dennis either. Yeah. And that's I mean, left true. And Dennis. I mean, I, I was 24 when I was working for him, you know, and, he he had a lot of energy. He was tireless. He ran circles around me back then. <laughs> I was 24. He was well into his 60s, and it was all you could do to keep up with him. And he would. I mean, he would be there first thing in the morning doing his work, and then at night when everyone was out doing cocktail parties with lobbyists, he was still at the office looking at budgets and doing the work that the people sent him to do. Yeah, which was, you know, one of the most admirable things I find about him. Um, you know, I kind of approached my elected office similarly, probably not quite as tirelessly as he does. But um, I do read read the background memos from staff before I, you know, I, I'll vote on something. I want to know that, you know, I, I know what I'm voting on. <laughs> I 
and I'm not yeah. not too different from his work ethic there that I don't vote on anything I haven't read um, and understand what what it really means. Um, so uh, I, I get it, you know, because it's kind of like that's that's my vote for you know representing my district, um, and I want to make sure I'm casting it well. And uh, Dennis really had that that work ethic, and I think you know as you your book starts out with his early career, you know, he was kind of pigeonholed as he was first elected as a, you know, a major social conservative and um, the, the Republican party at that time actually held a majority of the seats in the house and had a broad range of, of um, from, you know, the compassionate conservative, you know, neoconservative style Republicans to, you know, diehard, um, you know, social conservatives to fiscal conservatives to more libertarians and, and, you know, all, all that mix. And he kind of got pigeonholed and as a freshman, didn't get a lot of, um, you know, plum assignments as far as committees went, but he turned his work ethic into his second term, you know, rising pretty quickly in the ranks of the Republican caucus. You talk about you know, a little bit about his early um, time in the legislature and that 02 to, to 06 uh, range there. And, and to remind folks, we were dealing with the recession uh, post 9-11 at that time and the delayed effect it had on state revenues. So, you know, I remember that, you know, at, at, as the, the, you know, measure Twenty-eight and thirty, I think it was, where they tried to raise taxes um, that we the, the citizens had to say no, <laughs> and uh, a whole bunch of other things went on. So his first session, two thousand three, was a, a really really long one. In fact, um, when I was with his office in two thousand five, that was also a very long session. And one of the things he saw was that education funding got politicized. So that got to be an issue for him later on. Where he said, look, if education is that important, and we all agree it is, then we need to fund it first. You know, set aside some money for it, but the political tactic was that you pass all these other budgets first, and then you wait until the end and say, oh, here's education, but there's not as much money as we want, so I guess we're going to have to raise taxes. So he, he saw that, but was always very interested in a solution. And when I first met him, it was in 2002, um, I was reporting over there in his hometown of Central Point, and he was on the city council running for the legislature. And, you know, he was pretty clear that he was going to Salem to fight for conservative values and, you know, especially um, social conservative values. What a lot of people don't remember is that um, he was a challenger. He ran against an incumbent who he felt was too moderate on issues of taxation and social issues and beat her handily. So he took that as his mandate to, you know, go represent those values in Salem. Well, anyone who's been there knows you're running up against a brick wall of resistance. So even when I was with his office in the 2005 session, he had earned the respect of his colleagues within the caucus. And so uh, he was actually unanimously elected speaker pro tem. So that was a bipartisan vote between his party, between the Democrats in the building. And he ran many a floor session um, during the, the 2005 legislature. So um, he, he also became um, chair of the Ways and Means Subcommittee on Human Services. And so you know, he had this reputation as being a budget hawk, but he was not without compassion. And this is a man who had several children, including one that he'd adopted out of the foster care system the man who took care of elderly relatives towards the end of their life. And so he took it from the approach that families should do more, that you want to enable families to succeed internally. And the state should only pick that up when that isn't a possibility instead of it being the default, which it often seems to be in these situations. So there, there were some, pretty gut-wrenching moments there in 2005. A lot of the people who came to the office um, were lobbying on these kinds of issues. Um, 
human services and you know supports for very vulnerable people and he wasn't unsympathetic to it but he was realistic in terms of the bigger picture of the state budget and and what was sustainable and what was not yeah and you know it was so interesting that he became this budget hawk and the numbers guy because you know his background was as a trial attorney um and you know I've kind of become the budget numbers guy, but you kind of expect that because my background was as an engineer and I dealt with numbers and running project budgets and and actually ran a capital budget for a large water utility for a number of years. So you kind of expected me to be the budget guy, but you really didn't quite expect a trial attorney to suddenly become such a numbers guy because he was, he was amazing. Uh, how much he knew about the budget, the ins and outs, um, and showed that um, ability early. What I really enjoyed about doing this project was getting these perspectives from people that I'd worked with during that time because they would remind me of things that I'd completely forgotten about. One was that in 2005, he's looking at the human services budget, and he discovers that the Department of Human Services was leasing office space in Portland, at this extraordinary rate and have been doing it for years, except they weren't actually using it, right? They're just pouring money down the drain, these unoccupied, unused offices, and nobody could explain why this was being done. And nobody else would have caught that, but he did. And he always made it a point to, you know, bring these things up in committee. And sometimes it would make the directors of the agencies uncomfortable, but, you have to be able to answer those questions. And if you don't know why you're leasing office space for years in downtown Portland, you know, that other people are paying for, um, then maybe you should stop doing that, you know, and maybe think of it because he always thought of it as the state is purchasing services on the behalf of the people of Oregon. So let's make sure that we're getting what we paid for and that they're good yeah. services and that there are accountabilities uh, when that money is being misspent. Yeah. I had almost forgotten about that episode. <laughs> and there was that. another one where he was uh, running the floor session. It was April fool's day and um, they played a joke. So they went and got 60 Dennis Richardson masks, right? And they put them on popsicle sticks. And when he looked down Right, everyone put it in front of their faces. There was, you know, sixty of him looking back at him. <laughs> and I'd totally forgotten about that. But you know, there are moments of levity, and that—that's part of the human side of Dennis. Was that he actually had a really good sense of humor. You know, he had this. His professional profile was his his public profile, his persona as this very serious man, which which he definitely was. But he would actually get people rolling during caucus meetings, right? Behind closed doors. And he was a really funny guy. I don't think he got nearly enough credit for that. He was, I think, you know, the first time I met him was, you know, I said at Dorchester, I happened to end up going to lunch with him and Jason Williams uh, from Oregon taxpayers. And uh, yeah, he was, he was great lunch company. You know, he's a good guy. Um, nice sense of humor, friendly, really, you know, the thing that, you know, and this is something I struggle with sometimes because of my, my INTJ engineers, introvert brain um, is really good about asking you about what you thought and your opinion and reach and, and, and pulling stuff out of you um, in a conversation. Um, and, and listening to what you said, you know, um, something I, I sometimes I, I you know, as I think back on conversations, it's like I probably should have, you know, asked more questions or listened more or something like that and not talk so much, you know, as you review a conversation in your head. And, and Dennis really had this kind of gift, uh, even though he was known for being, you know, this workaholic budget guy and everything else. And at the same time, he had this gift of humor, but he also had this gift of um, how he talked to people, brought people out. Um, and that's, you know, in, in, and it was interesting looking at the fact that you use this 
um, personal narrative from all these people that knew Dennis, how much that came up in, in, in their comments about Dennis was the, this side of him that would, would ask questions and listen and, and want people's opinion about things he was mulling over. It, it, he definitely, um, he was very approachable. I mean, even towards the end, here's a man who's elected to statewide office, first Republican to get statewide office you know, since 2002, um, second most powerful elected official in the state, still approachable, still humble. Um, he never let it get to his head. For you know, I mean, a lot of these elected officials have egos. You know that. Dealt with another them over the years. I've dealt with a lot of them over the years. Um, he surprisingly, especially as, as he you know became had more and more influence over time, stayed true to his values and who he really was. And you know, for, to his family, he was still grandpa at the end of the day. Yeah, it, very likable person. Um, you know, and kind of broke that mold of of. Uh, you know, some kind of grumpy, staunch conservative. He was definitely not that. Um, he was very um, warm and and engaging in his uh, um, personal dealings with people. And I I I, I witnessed that early on, and it and it was interesting when I started you know reading that even the first chapter of the book. It immediately made me think of that 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 lunch, you know, that I had there in Dorchester (laughs) and the way he, you know, engaged me in conversation. Um, And it was really um, kind of a flashback moment for me. Um, So, you know, as as Dennis moved along in in the legislature and, you know, developed his leadership, at the same time, you know, the Republican caucus lost power. Um, and he he became um, you know minority whip, and then you know it, it, as his career went on, um, he got to deal with another downturn in state revenues a, a, after the uh, the real estate um, and mortgage uh, debacle that happened there in 2008, um, and had to deal with that. Uh, at the same time. Uh, as a whole bunch of other things were going on as he got later in his, his legislative career, um, he got less and less known as a social conservative. And that it was kind of an interesting thing to follow in the book uh, a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about his later time in the legislature versus his early time? Yeah. And that was one of the benefits I got from my perspective, having worked with him before he got in, um, having worked with him early on in his career. And then what, by the time I came back to the legislature to work for the House Caucus in 2013, 2014, um, he'd already been co-chair of the Ways and Means Committee by then. Um, he de- he evolved as a statesman, and, and I wasn't alone in, in noticing that. That was one of the things that came up in the interviews. And, you know, I, I interviewed some of his former Democratic colleagues from the legislature, and that's what they said. They said, man, he was really tough when he first came in, but – you know, and this happens to everybody. The longer you're there, the more you realize how things really work. And you have to have bipartisanship and compromise and statesmanship. So he was able to do that without compromising his true values, because sometimes that happens too, um, where politicians are in office for too long. They kind of lose sight of who sent them there in the first place. But I think he managed to get that balance and got to become a more effective legislator over time. And then, you know, by the time he decided to run for governor, um, and, and plus the, the overall climate had changed too. People forget that in 2004, the voters passed a statewide initiative, I believe it was Measure 36, saying that marriage was between a man and a woman. That, that was a statewide vote of the people, right? So when he came into the 05 legislative session, his intent wasn't to stoke the culture war. He was trying to uphold the will of the voters. Well, by the time, you know, 2014 rolled around, um, voters had changed their mind. The courts had spoken up on it. And he was pragmatic. 
I mean, he was an attorney. He respected the will of the people. And he said, well, this is the, this is the law now, and so the, we're, we're going to run with that. Hell, so he, he, he definitely had a sense of pragmatism about him uh, that helped guide a lot of his policies. Plus, when he was running for governor, he started spending a lot more time you know, in the Portland area because you have to, especially when you're a legislator from southern Oregon. Um, and you're trying to get your name ID. This is where most of the people are. So he started to get more familiar with the issues facing people in Portland, especially in his 2016 race. And a lot of those issues became priorities for him uh, once he became Secretary of State. So that included audits of Portland Public Schools and the way that it was failing students of color, um, audits of DEQ and its failure to quality standards over in Southeast Portland, what were predominantly low-income neighborhoods, um, you know, where some where minorities lived. So he, he, and that was another chapter I put together. Uh, another thing I don't think he gets enough credit for is he he was a champion of the downtrodden. Uh, that wasn't a big part of his public image, but as as a trial attorney, he was looking out for the little guy. As um, you know, I mean, he he was primarily an an injury attorney, and a lot of us from Southern Oregon knew him as the guy in the back of the phone book. <laughs> so that helped get him his his name ID before he even ran for office. You know, you literally just right phone books were a thing back then. You flip over yeah, the phone book and there's your chief spot. <laughs> <laughs> you flip over the phone book and there's Dennis Richardson. Um, so he did it as a trial attorney. He did it as a legislator and did it as secretary of state. Um, and I'm, that's where, like I said, I'm, I'm glad that I got to interview some of the people that I talked to because those were the kinds of perspectives that I got. And plus, I mean, a, a lot of these were, were and are good friends of mine and it gave me an excuse to visit with them. Yeah. It, it, which is always a nice thing. So I want to just remind folks, you're listening to the Bose Nose Show here on KRBN Internet News Talk Radio. And if you have um, a recollection of Dennis Richardson or a question for Scott about Dennis, you can give us a call here, 646-721-9887. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets Robin, or my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation. So, Scott, you know, the, the book covers, you know, a lot of his public, the, the public portion of his life. Um, but, you know, one of the things, you know, that is amazing to me is, is Dennis's earlier life. Um, the man, basically, a, 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 you know, a badass in some ways. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you would never expect it because he's so mild mannered, so engaging, such a nice guy, you know, and and never hear a cuss word come out of his mouth, you know. Right. Uh, You know, yet, you know, this this is the guy that like flew helicopters in in Vietnam. Yeah. Right. You, you you know, you you don't cover it in your book, but you know some of this history because you knew Dennis. Can you, for those that, that, you know, don't know Dennis, tell us a little bit about pre-public life Dennis. Sure. Well, and this is one of the things, um, you know, reactive in the Oregon Republican Party for years, said he thought of him as a populist because, you know, people have this image of Republicans and they kind of do it to themselves in some way. Uh, hanging out at country clubs, um, <laughs> here we are at the golf course having another fundraiser as you know wealthy elitists. But Dennis grew up poor. His father was a carpenter, you know. So they and that perspective kind of carried with him. And you know it, his wife Kathy, you know who's now unfortunately a widow, was a big part of his life and, and one of the best influences in his life because. She was able to take this this man who, you know, had been kind of rough and tumble as a young man. We all are. I mean, I'll admit that I've been there myself. <laughs> uh, but but that's what it takes a lot of times is a good woman to, to help settle you down. And his faith was a, a very big part of his life. 
it, it did drive you know, a lot of his political philosophy, um, but he wasn't raised religiously and definitely wasn't raised in the Mormon faith. I think a lot of that was his wife's influence. And, you know, here's a guy who managed to raise nine kids, you know, eight daughters, um, and, and still remain, you know, <laughs> and then balance all of this. So by the time he started his public life, uh, most of his daughters had grown and been married off, you know, and gone on to start their own families. I remember he used to have this picture in his office in the 05 session uh, of his family, and it was almost a panoramic picture because there were there were so many people. So this is him and his daughters and their kids, and uh, there were many more um, by the end of his life. I, I think he was even like a great-grandfather by then. So but that was the human side of him. And, and I could have, like I said, taken the academic approach and said, oh, here during this session, these were the committees that he sat on and these were the bills that he sponsored. But I, to me, that defeats the purpose. That wasn't the point of this. This was... To, to talk about the character of this man, his service to the state, and what it meant to those of us who were influenced by it. Um, because a lot of the people I interviewed, especially the ones that were peers of mine, right, I mean, I'm, I'm around 40, um, he, he helped mentor a lot of us. So he wasn't just a boss. He wasn't just some politician that I'd worked with. Uh, he, he was a, a genuine friend, mentor, and father figure, not just for me, for, but for a lot of people. One of them is, you know, Lindsay Burschauer, who was um, who's going to be a county commissioner. Right? She she got elected over there in Yamhill County, so you'll be seeing her at Association of Oregon Counties meetings next year. Um, they got to be really close, and he definitely helped her get to where she is. So it, we're his legacy in a lot of ways, and that's how I look at it. Yeah, and that you know, that's just a, speaks volumes of, of Dennis's uh, character and all that. The fact that you know you guys feel like he was such a mentor, and and uh, and you can look around uh, Oregon at some of the the young leaders and go, yeah, De- Dennis brought that person along, um, you know, people like Lindsay and, and yourself, you know, here you are, you know, a city administrator, Lindsay's going to be a county commissioner, you know, it's like, there are all sorts of people I know that are still, you know, I, I run into Nick Smith at, you know, healthy force, healthy communities pretty regularly and, and, uh, and other people that have, have been part of Dennis's circle of staff or, or, um, you know, work on campaigns and, and they're all, you know, becoming um, leaders in the state in one, one form or another, which, you know, when you're mentoring leaders, um, that that's pretty impressive thing. I, I don't think I can point to folks that are now becoming leaders that I mentored or something. I, I, the one thing that did stand out in the book to me was your comments about his thoughts on public service and, Ben Franklin's thoughts on public service. I had never considered that about myself. Um, I just got to a point in my life where I had the ability to go full time into politics and move away from engineering and didn't think of it as that kind of Ben Franklin decision of spending the first part of my life setting myself up to have to do public service later. Um, But, you know, reading that it was like that was kind of an aha thing in the book. It's like, wow, I did the same thing Dennis did in a lot of ways because I I spent 30 years as an engineer and completely switched gears. You know, took a cut in pay and and I've spent the last 10 years as county commissioner, serving my community. So I I I kind of get it and 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 get Dennis's motivations in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, he... well, we we came up together. I mean, I remember we were both, you know, conservative activists in Lane County during the 2004 election. Yeah, but I'm a little older than you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think I'm just getting started. Yeah, 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 and I'm kind of getting towards the end of end of my career. Seeing, I'm 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 past that that big six zero uh, marker by a few years. Um, so. We got about 20 years between us, but uh, it's kind of funny because I was 
hanging out at, at, with a lot of people that were um, just getting into politics coming out of college, uh, as I was just being an act, you know, getting involved as, a, as an activist back in the early 2000s. So it was kind of kind of interesting to be, be around that younger set, you know, the Dorchester crowd and everything. Um, definitely did not close any of the parties out at Dorchester like some of that crowd did. <laughs> I, I've done that a few times myself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was already married. So you know, I went back to my room somewhere about 11 o'clock or something and called the wife to say goodnight. <laughs> well, let's see that that's where I'm at now. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he had been raising daughters and, you know, I have a, a daughter who's one and my, my son's 12, you know, almost 13 now. So I'm, I'm just in that phase of life. And I, I don't know what the future holds. I, you know, when I first met him when I was 22, I had no idea that I ever would have done a lot of the things that I've done. And, and he was kind of my bridge into that world, too, because I think for a lot of people, um, politics is this distant, remote thing. I mean, here I was a teenager, right? Who are these idiots that write all these laws? What's wrong with them? Um, but then I start reporting, and it's this backstage pass. And then all of a sudden I go, hey, wait a minute. I, I actually know some of the guys that, that were in the legislature. I, I can call them, and they'll call me back. This is wild. And I, I never would have imagined getting to work at the Capitol. I, you know, at a certain point in life, I wouldn't have imagined them even letting me in the building. But... <laughs> Uh, there I was, you know, at 24 years old, working there because of the opportunities that he gave me. Because I, I guess he saw something in me. I don't know, but I, I never would have imagined, you know, ever being able to run a city. I mean, as a teenager, I'm playing Sim City, saying, "Okay, this is kind of neat," but I, I just I didn't think any of that was even within the realm of possibility. But he he helped me get there, and I owe a lot to him. Yeah, he was he was an amazing guy an amazing you know person um family man uh amazing leader and mentor um and and deserved having a book written about him so i really you know want to thank you for doing that um going back and reading reading that that book really you know spurred a lot of memories for me um as i watched his career um really wish he had been governor Well, and that was some of the memories that that were less than pleasant for me because, um, you know, it's been six years, but the governor's race in that whole count, um, it was like pulling a Band-Aid off of a wound in a lot of ways because he should have been governor and he would have done a great yeah. job as governor, um, but he was kind of robbed. And so yeah. for that portion of the book, one of the guys I interviewed was Stuart Rogers, who was his right-hand man during the campaign, wanted to interview his campaign manager, Tom McGinnis, but Tom passed away. I'd literally left him a voicemail a few days before he, he died saying, Hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. Right. Really thought the world of Tom. Um, so I was unfortunately able to get his perspective in it. But I also talked to Nigel Jaquist over at Willamette week and we just went scandal by scandal said, okay, Columbia River Crossing, what happened there? Cover Oregon, what happened there? Um, Sylvia Hayes, right? And it was remembering that, gosh, it was this horrible combination of corruption and incompetence, you know, and that there were reasons that we didn't want John Kitzhaber to be governor anymore, Um, despite, you know, any good that he may have ever done for the state. um, Those last few months that he was in office, um, that, that that was awful. It was a black eye for this state. And, yeah. you know, had, and the most egregious thing is that the press had made some public records requests of state agencies overseen by Kitzhaber, who sat on those requests until after the election. And that informed some of the work that I did in the legislature later on, trying to make sure that our public records policies were such that couldn't just stall out a records request indefinitely and you couldn't charge a reporter who makes $20,000 a year $30,000 to search for records that you should already have. You know, and now in my day job, I mean, I'm responsible for that. You know, I, I fulfill public records requests. I've never charged anybody for it, and I never will unless it takes me all day. Uh, so, so that was egregious, but some good things did ultimately come of it. 
and he was able to use the name recognition and kind of that voter's remorse uh, to get elected Secretary of State. And the tragedy there was that he was just getting started um, doing all these audits on agencies and these problems and fulfilling his campaign promises. And his, his legacy very much hangs in the balance right now. We're you know just over a month away from this next election. His successor is going to be decided, and the people of the state um, have to ask themselves, you know, are, are we going to continue this legacy of transparency and accountability, or are we going to go back to state agencies being able to do whatever they want with any consequences? Yeah, and one only has to look at the uh, unemployment insurance debacle to understand um, there needs to be some serious auditing and reform going on in some of these state agencies. I, I just, it, it's incredibly hey, I'm, maddening. I'm, I'm still furious about that. And he would have been yeah. unhappy about it too, but he would have tried to find solutions. There was one moment there, and I'm sure folks will remember this, he put out a newsletter when they were trying to balance the budget. You know, he did a public records request. He got um, emails for state employees, and he asked them, what are your suggestions for the budget? And the public employee unions came after him for that. Oh, you're the spam king. You're spamming our members. Well, a lot of those rank-and-file members actually emailed him with useful suggestions that he used to balance the budget. <laughs> yeah. So one of those about four middle managers above this one guy. Right. Yeah. And so he, but he didn't take it personally. I, mean, I, I think I, I would always get more upset watching, you know, people attack him than he actually got himself over it. And that was a lesson for me. And okay, well, <laughs> don't take it personally, especially when, you know, if, if you're that guy in that position, just know that it comes with the territory and he never let it get under his skin. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, he was so unflappable in so many ways. I never really saw him get come unglued about anything. Uh, yeah, oh, in the time. And a lot of that was his religious faith. And one of the things he taught me very early on that has stuck with me is he said, you can have faith, you can have fear, but you can't have both. And that he very much lived by that. He, he was driven by his personal faith and his relationship with his creator, um, and, and it served him well in, in his private and his public life. But I, I wanted to focus on his on his public life and thank his family for the fact that they shared him with us that whole time. You know, and Kathy would occasionally work as his legislative aide at the Capitol, and so you know she was very much supportive and she was around, but... Um, you know, obviously they, they gave up a lot of time um, because they, they knew that he was, you know, doing it for the people of the state. And precious time at that, seeing his, his life, you know, got shortened. Um, you know, I just can't imagine what it, it would have been like for her as he was doing his, in, a, in, the, in the legislature, in the office at six in the morning, leaving the office at 8:30 at night doesn't leave a lot of time for uh, you know a lot of family. Um, so I, I you, yeah, I agree with you. We have to thank his family for um, the fact they loaned Dennis to us for for you know almost 20 years. Yeah, and I, I included his daughter Valerie in the acknowledgments and. She was a big help for the project, you know, so I reached out to her because I, I wasn't going to do it if the family, you know, didn't know about it or wasn't supportive of it. And one of the biggest votes of confidence I got was from a lot of the people I interviewed who said, we're glad that it's you that's doing this. He would have wanted that, you know, and I actually, I have a picture of him here in my office and it's him next to Vicatia and next to uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And they're all just to the left of me kind of staring down. And I, I can look up and say, these are my reminders of people who served their country, their state, and, and their communities, and just try to pay those public service values forward to the best I can. Well, that's really great, Scott. And, and I really appreciate you coming on the, the Bose Nose show here to talk about um, 
Dennis Richardson and his wife. Um, I want to remind folks, if, if you want to get in on the conversation here and, you know, if you have a Dennis Richardson memory or some a question about Dennis, uh, give us a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1. And that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get on the conversation. Again, 646-721-9887. And don't forget to press 1 because we do have people that call into the show just to listen on their cell phones because they're traveling away from their computers when we are live. So, um, yeah, I think we've kind of covered pretty much the the length and breadth of the book. Um, Is there... Is there something that you didn't put in the book, maybe, that that stands out in your mind because it it just didn't quite fit the 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 style of narrative you were doing, which was mostly about his public life? Was there something somebody told you or that might have surprised you, or 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 was a unique thing that maybe wasn't in the book, Scott? Yeah, I mean there were. There were probably other people that I could have interviewed for it, but I, I wanted to make sure that I did it in a timely fashion, you know, because beyond a certain point, you, you just want to get it out. Um, and a lot of them were people that I barely knew or didn't really know at all, and I, I just didn't have that rapport built up with them. So I, I probably could have added another 10 or so perspectives if I really needed to. Um, and my publisher initially said, well, you know, send me over what you have, and you can flush it out. Stuart Rogers, who'd worked on the governor's race, had sent me over a bunch of videos of, you know, the gubernatorial debates and things like that. So I, I could have used that if I wanted to, but I, I think I, I didn't want to spend too long on any particular aspect of his life. So just just kind of keep it going. Here's some you know, kind of the bigger narrative about the governor's race and what happened there from a few different perspectives. And then, um, you know, and then he went back to being a citizen for a while. So, you know, there's some memories that I have that that come up at the time. I I tried to get as many of those in there as I could, even there towards the end. I mean, it was after the 2017 session. He was already secretary of state. Um, I'd just gone through a divorce and was kind of restarting my life. I I had my son. We were over in Lincoln City on the beach with a friend of mine. It dawned on me until afterwards that, wow, that was the Secretary of State. (laughs) The Secretary of State of Oregon just went out of his way to call me to talk to me. And you know, I was talking earlier about the mentorships. Stuart Rogers actually ended up taking my old job in Aurora. He was looking to get into city administration, and we'd been talking about the book. And so, um, you know, he ended up applying for it, and I wrote him a letter of recommendation. He did his research, did his homework, and he ended up, you know, becoming the city recorder of Aurora. And I hear he's doing a great job. So I think. Dennis would have been really proud of the both of us. I'd like to think so anyway. Yeah. And, and I have to tell you, um, having been a County commissioner and had County administrators, uh, which is just the city version of a city manager, but at the County level and working with them, I, I know that that position that you have right now is such a, a um, interesting and difficult position because you're dealing with a political body in the city council and there, but you can't be political. You have to be yeah. neutral, everything, um, and, and be an administrator. So that shift probably from, from being legislative assistant and, and campaign work and everything else where you're very political to this, you know, the city administration side, um, you have to have had some pretty good mentoring to be able to have the ability to turn that off enough to be able to, you know, move into a larger jurisdiction, more responsibility that you have now, um, and, and maintain that that neutrality that you need to maintain as an administrator. 
Uh, it's a difficult thing to do. I can't imagine having that control sometimes. Well, and it's all the balances. It, the grad school program I did at Portland State helped out a lot, um, and so did uh, you know the last senator I worked for was Alan DeBoer. Uh, I met him around the same time I met Dennis um, in 2002 when he was mayor of Ashland. And so Alan was a phenomenal mentor, and he had the right approach. He said, we are here to solve problems. And that's the approach that I take um, with these, these cities. And it's just respecting the chains of command and saying, it, it doesn't matter what you as an administrator, your job is not to impose your vision on these communities. Your job is to take direction from the city council because they take direction from the citizens, right? So, and my hat's off to city councilors, not just the ones that I've worked with um, and worked for over the years, but all of them. You know, if you're a city councilor and you go to the grocery store <laughs> and folks are mad about something, you're going to hear about it. And you know, at that point, you call your city administrator and say, why isn't this being done? So the whole system kind of revolves around everybody being responsive. And as long as you remember at the end of the day who it is that you're really working for, uh, it works. And I've also seen it not work. If you'll remember, I mean, I, I started off as a small town reporter. So I was going to city council meetings in places like you know, Jacksonville, Estacada, Gold Hill, Rogue River, Cave Junction, um, covered the Josephine County Board of Commissioners back in the depths of the recession. That was awful. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 you were there too. I mean, you were a county commissioner during that time. Um, the, all the ONC counties, no logging going on. Um, there's no jobs. They didn't have revenue for libraries. There was limited law enforcement, and so I, I got very familiar kind of with the political dynamics and the way that it can affect administrators, and just knowing that, okay, if this is how many city councilors you have, then ideally you want to keep all of them happy, but at the very least keep a majority of them happy, and you'll keep your job. Yep. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. It's sort of... Um... You know, you, you laugh about the grocery store thing. I, I always tell people, you know, that ask me what it's like being a county commissioner. I say, you're never not a county commissioner. I have to, right. I have to get an extra 15 minutes if I go to Fred Meyer because somebody will stop me in one of the aisles to tell me about their neighbor or building permit or, you know, <laughs> some problem they have, you know, and, and, and I have to pay attention and kind of take some mental notes and, and try and deal with it later on. Um, but you're never not that local. When you're at that local level, you're you're so close to the people that people recognize you. You're shopping in the same stores. You're going to the same restaurants. You will have that issue all the time. Um, and it's kind of sort of full circle for you because now you're working for city councilors and Dennis started as a city councilor. <laughs> so you, That's true. Just, for, for a moment, just imagine, Scott, that you are the city administrator for Central Point when Dennis was on the council. What would it have been <laughs> like to be Dennis's administrator and, and have to answer to that intellect? <laughs> well, it means that you have to be prepared when you come into the meetings and um, be honest with him about what's going on because he wouldn't let you get away with anything else. And it was always interesting watching uh, the different dynamics of, of how the lobby would deal with him. And you know, that's where uh, a lot of my experience comes in handy, being in the legislature, working for elected officials, because you know, I would be the guy running the office and managing the schedule. And it was always beyond me. I would have a really hard time doing that. Right. And walking into the office every day, okay, here's my schedule that someone else wrote. Who am I meeting with? What do they want? What, right? You're zipping from meeting to meeting to meeting. But you just know when you're a legislator that, that that's what you signed up for. <laughs> and it's a lot of different subject matters, too. I mean, you'll literally sit through a meeting and you're talking about public safety, and then you'll have a meeting about, you know, water policy and then you'll shift to mental health issues and so you 
really touch upon a lot of things, but that was where his background came in handy, where he had, you know, being a small town city councilor, he knew about those local issues and what they looked like at that level and what it took for cities to succeed. And they thought of, they thought enough of him in Central Point that they are still working on um, setting up a, a part of their public park and, and dedicating it to him. He had also been instrumental in, I mean, this was one of his shining moments, the Vietnam Memorial. Um, he was a Vietnam veteran, and I was there at the dedication ceremony in 2008. I was news director at you know, Grants Pass Broadcasting, and it was miserable. It was a, a pouring down rain, gray, <laughs> but but it was a shining moment for him because he had that passion, um, got a lot of people together, got the funding lined up for it, and it still stands to this day. And the portion of the park that's going to be dedicated to him, I think, is going to be over in that vicinity. That's great. It just kind of speaks volumes and brings us back kind of full circle in Dennis's public life. Um, from, you know, city council all the way to the secretary of state, the second highest office uh, in the state. Uh, if the, the governor, something happens, you, you, you're the one that steps in. And uh, as we've seen with Kate Brown. <laughs> uh, right. It, so, it, it's an important yeah. position. And it's been held for most of the last few years, you know, on either side of his stint by folks who were caretakers. So, yep. you know, Jeannie Adkins was the caretaker after Kate Brown became governor. Right now you've got Bev Clarno as a caretaker, and I'm not knocking either of them. Um, but that being said, we didn't vote for them. Right? So yep. if something were to happen, all of a sudden you'd have a governor who was appointed to Secretary of State. So that's one of the reasons that this, this particular race is really critical this time around. Yeah, yeah, and I... I, I know who I'm voting for. Well, and Senator Kim Thatcher was kind enough to give me some time um, because she had worked really closely with Dennis. I mean, I think she her session was right after his first session. Um, so they'd worked closely together in that time and worked on a lot of the same issues too. Um, Senator Thatcher, to her credit, has done a lot of work on transparency and accountability. And so um, and I, know, I know her pretty well. I've worked closely with her over the years, and I'm pretty sure that she would be willing to take on that mantle. And I hope that, you know, in the event that Shamia Fagan gets elected to it, that she will try to be mindful of Dennis's legacy as well. You know, we're not viewing audits as a witch hunt against these agencies, but as ways that they can improve the services that they provide to the people of this state. And, you know, that, that issue of the employment department came up on this rulemaking advisory committee I was in. Uh, and you'll, you know about this, right, with, with uh, private parties being able, like private companies doing building inspections, being building officials, because I, I know they yeah. use them there in Lane County. Um, and we had a representative from AFSCME on there. And I said, you know, look, if, if the idea is to have the state take it over, then you're going to have the same problems that you're having with these other agencies accountability. He says, oh, I reject this attack on hardworking public employees. But see, that's the problem right there. That's, yeah. that's, that's not what the focus should be. The focus should be on the hardworking people who got laid off through a fault of their own who have been trying for months to get unemployment benefits and can't get anywhere. That, that's who we yeah. should be thinking of. So our, our systems need to work for the people who pay into them, uh, especially vulnerable people. And when those systems don't work, it fails all of us. And Dennis was mindful of that with the audits that he did. Uh, I try to be mindful of that in my day job. And I hope that whoever takes over Secretary of State continues that tradition. And with that, Scott, I want to thank you very much for coming on the Bose Nose Show. We're almost out of time here. Um, it's been great talking with you and catching up with you again. Um, we'll be back next week at our regular time and probably have more of a regular um, Bo's Nose show because I've got a lot to talk about. We've got COVID numbers going up in Lane County. We've got fire recovery work and uh, it's, there's a lot to talk about outside of this, but I wanted to get Scott back on because I had to bump him to 
we had a couple of fires breaking out here. Uh, and uh, Scott, thank you for understanding and thanks for coming on the Bo's Nose Show. Well, thanks for having me. And, yeah, folks can pick that up. That's Our Friends Dennis, and it's available on Amazon.com. Excellent. Great promo, and uh, it was a great read for me. And thank you very much for your time, and have a great time there in Rainier in, in the clear skies. And I'm hoping maybe the wind will shift from your direction and we'll get some here. That'd be great. No, thanks for your years of friendship. I really appreciate it. All right. Have a great week, Scott. Talk to you later. Well, thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back, like I said, next week at 4 o'clock. Have a great week, everybody. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VTW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus